Let's, uh, let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from John chapter 17. It's verses 3 and 22 through 26. And the word of the Lord says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can be seated. Let's, let's pray this morning. God, I pray that each one of us here today might see the greatness and the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ, that we would treasure him above health and life and all other things, and that the more we become satisfied in you, the more your name might be glorified in us. God, open our hearts this morning to the sweetness and the loveliness and the beauty of the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus for the past several weeks. And today we come to the conclusion of this chapter. John 17 is one of those chapters in the Bible like Romans 8 or Psalm 23 that captures and encapsulates the very heart of God. And if we drill down deep enough into the text, we find the deepest passions and the deepest desires of Christ himself. The great reformer, John Knox, as he lay dying, had this chapter of the Bible read to him over and over and over again. And the Puritans used to sing this chapter of the Bible. This is a deep and beautiful prayer that Jesus is praying for his disciples, but not just for the 12 disciples who are in the room with him at this moment in time. Jesus said in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is not only praying for the 12 disciples, he's praying for you and he's praying for me. And in this prayer, Jesus makes five specific petitions, five requests of God the Father. One, Father, protect them. Two, Father, unify them. Three, Father, sanctify them. Four, Father, give them joy. And today we're going to talk about the fifth petition Jesus makes, Father, hold them forever. Years ago, the Beatles wrote a really famous song called All You Need Is Love. The only words I know to the song are All You Need Is Love because they sing those, song, those uh, lyrics over and over and over. And it is a really nice sentiment that all you might need is love. But if you've ever been in a meaningful relationship, you understand that a lot more than just love is required to maintain a strong bond with another individual. The butterflies in the belly will maintain you for a while. 
But eventually, all those tingly feelings will start to fade and you'll wake up one morning and you realize that the person you married is not Brad Pitt anymore. Uh, And maybe you realize that they never really were. And you begin to understand that you need more than love. You need patience. You need trust. You need forgiveness and sacrifice and an enduring commitment to stay in a relationship during those times when you experience the ugly parts of an individual. We say all the time that we will love someone forever. But specifically, that uh, doesn't, statistically speaking, that doesn't hold true in our culture. Uh, looking at our word, world from a large scale, we love people for as long as we find them likable. And then we move on to someone else when we don't like them anymore. It's true in marriage, it's true in friendships, it's true in our work lives, and it's even true in our relationship with churches. We have a tendency as human beings to be in constant search of greener pastures, a more satisfying experience that will make us feel complete. The bottom line is we're all looking for love that lasts and joy that stands the test of of time forever. That's what we're looking for. So when Jesus uses the word love, In John chapter 17, he uses it in three different contexts, okay? One, he uses it to speak about the love that God the Father has for God the Son. That's the perfect love of two perfect individuals that they have for each other. And second, uh, he uses the word love to describe the bond that believers have for each other in the context of Christian unity and community, the church, And third, he uses the word love to speak about how we are invited into this love, this enduring, sacrificial, forgiving, never-ending, perfect love that the Father has for the Son through the blood of Christ. Okay? So when we enter into a relationship with Christ, it's a covenant bond of love, promises that will never be broken. Now, With earthly marriage, when we get on social media, we like to say things uh, like, Brittany is my forever wedding date, right? We, We do that, right? When we take our selfies at weddings, we say they're for our forever wedding date. When we go on vacation... Uh, uh, Kathy says, George is my forever travel companion, right? That's what we do, right? We, we say those things. There's an expectation of forever in human relationships, even in our easily broken till death to us part earthly relationships. But God's love is different. It's an eternal love. Jesus said specifically in today's text, That the Father loved the Son before time even began. It's an eternal love, a deeper and wider love than we can fathom. So in today's, uh, what we're going to do with today's text, we're going to let Scripture speak for Scripture a little bit. And we're going to use Psalm 16 to kind of piece out what a forever love looks like. What does forever in Christ look like? So in Psalm 16, 1, the Bible says, For in you I take refuge. What that looks like is God is my forever, perfect, trustworthy love. There's a song by Pat Barrett called Sales that says, 
Falling is easy. Staying in love is hard. Being in a relationship with anyone, even a relative, takes trust. And the Hebrew phrase here for in you I take refuge means to willingly turn your life over to a person or an idea. To trust completely. And that's a challenging thing to do in a world where everything seems to be temporary. The good news is, though, that God's love transcends the earthly version of love. The Greek word for love in John 17 is agapeo. This is a perfect love that's anchored in eternity. It's extended by God to man as demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is a love that once received is intended to be reflected by men back to God and to each other. It's the purest and noblest form of love. It's love that isn't motivated by physical attraction or even how much you like an individual. But it's a love that is intentionally given as an act of the will, regardless of whether the person you give it to deserves it in any way whatsoever. It's a self-sacrificial love that's extended to another individual, regardless of whether that person is worthy or unworthy of the love that's being given. Uh, So the Hebrew version of this type of love is called ahava. And this is a word that doesn't describe an emotion, okay? But it's an act of the will. So the gospel isn't a story of how great and likable Lee Adams is, so God loves him. I'm not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. God displays this peculiar, supernatural love, this divine, unique attribute that makes God who he is, and it's put on full display at the cross. This agapeo and ahava love says, I've seen the ugliest parts of you, and I'm not leaving. I know all of your bad scars. I know all of your bad history, and I'm going to love you anyway. We don't understand love like that. Because you know what? After church today, Jason, Luke, and I are probably going to be sitting across the table from each other at Los Reyes, and we're going to look at each other, and he's going to say, I love tacos. And I'm going to say, I love chimichangas. And then he's going to say, I love UGA football. And I'm going to say, I love the Atlanta Braves. And that's how our conversations, and then we'll start eating so we won't talk anymore. I I don't think we even have language in English to describe the depth of love that Jesus is talking about here. This is a Hebrews 13, 5, never leaving, never forsaking, unchanging, relentless Love. It's an intimate love where you're known fully with no fear of rejection. In the words of a great pastor that I enjoy friendship with, Scott Sauls, he wrote, Once we become God's children, we cannot unbecome his children. In other words, we are safe with him. We have refuge in him. He will not reject us on our best days and our worst days. He will remain loyal to us. 
This is a unique truth about Christianity, he wrote. God will continue to accept us even when we fail Him repeatedly. He will not push the eject button on us when we fall short of the mark. We are never on eggshells with Him because the God who forgives is the God who stays. This can't be said about our work. If we fail at work, it won't forgive us. We'll be fired. It can't be said about your investments. If you predict the stock market wrong, you'll be in the poorhouse. And ultimately, you can't say that about people either. Some are more prone to forgive than others. But if you fail somebody badly enough, there's no guarantee that they're going to give you a fresh start. Trust might be broken permanently. But Jesus, Jesus is the God who stays forever. And He forgives 70 times 7 and again and again and again. In the middle of this prayer, in verse 25, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's what makes today's text really special, all right? Here we see the full bent of Jesus' heart, his deepest desire, Father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and experience the love that you've shared with me since the before the foundation of the world. He's asking the Father to give him what he wants and what does he want? He wants us. Us. That's mind-boggling. He wants us to be with Him forever so that we can experience the love that God the Father, a perfect being, shares with God the Son, another perfect being, a perfect love that lasts forever. In Christ Even if we don't have the best day every day, we have forever security and forever affection, forever love, forever life. But best of all, we have a forever Father that loves us and cares for us even when we're down and out. We are His and He is ours. So when David writes, for in you I take refuge, he's saying that God is a safe place and that we can trust God with our entire lives here on earth and also in eternity. So what does forever in Christ look like? In Psalm 16.3 it says, As for the saints in the land, when David says saints here, he means the ones who are fellow believers in God. Okay, For us, it means the people with whom we share faith in Christ. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And what he's saying is, God is my source of forever community. We live in a world that is infinitely connected. 
but we are starving to death for intimacy and close relationships. It is ironic that someone can have thousands of friends and followers on social media, but at the same time experience very little in the way of human companionship. We send our messages we need to send via text on our smartphones, and we never actually have a conversation. About five years ago, I had someone who was going through a difficult period, and he sent me a text message, and it went on and on and on about this particular problem he was having. And I actually counted, and the text message was a little over 500 words. It would have qualified as a nice high school essay, okay? And so I texted him, and I said, give me a call. This is a lot to talk about. And he responded, and he said, I really don't have time to talk on the phone. And I said, you just sent me a 500-word essay. You have time to talk. But that's how a lot of us operate, isn't it? We would much rather not have that, even, even the, uh, uh, the least form of intimate contact probably, and that's a phone conversation. We would rather just text and do it that way. We order our groceries via click list. So we never have to say a word to anyone in the store, a smile at another human being. We do our shopping online, so we never go into department stores. But Christianity is not a faith where someone lives on an island by themselves. God intends for us to live out our faith in the fellowship of the local church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can be saved and sit at home every Sunday, but you're missing out on the inspiration and the encouragement of being surrounded by other imperfect people who are willing and want to be transformed into something different from what they are. Psalm 149.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the faithful. We're commanded to sing God's praises with the assembly of the faithful, the church. So we're to worship and live out our faith corporately, finding delight in all these excellent people. Look at all you excellent people this morning. To find delight in in each other as we come to worship God together. Now, I'm from Georgia, so I've heard a million times, I can worship God just as good in my deer stand as you can in that church of yours. And in some ways, that might be true. People have a million reasons for not attending church. Church life is messy, y'all. It is. Even on the best days. Anytime you get 20 people in a room together and you have a business meeting, you're going to have 150 different opinions. And somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. We've all experienced hurt and disappointment, heartbreak in churches, Jesus understands. It costs something to live in community with human beings. It costs Jesus' life. 
He wound up nailed to a cross by the very people he came to serve and to save. Jeremiah understood that. He preached for 30 years and not one single person converted. And the people who listened to him sawed him in half. Stephen understood it. He preached one of the most powerful messages in the entire New Testament about salvation that's available through Christ, and they stoned him to death. So following in Jesus' example and following in the example of the saints who came before us, we don't enter into community with other believers so that we'll get our way and always have our preferences met and ideas approved all the time. We die to what we want sometimes so we can, so we can share the love we found in Christ in community with others and model that love for the unbelieving world around us. Jesus said in John 17, verses 22 and 23, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's talking about us. That they may be one. He's talking about us. Even as we are one. He's talking about himself and God. So for us to be unified in the same way that God the Father and God the Son are unified. I and them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world, this is why, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, look, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm standing up here right now. I'm sweating like an Auburn football player trying to do math, okay? Because uh, this temperature is way too high for me. If it were up to me, I would have come in here at 10 o'clock last night and bumped it down to 62. You all would have frozen to death. You'd been wrapped up in blankets. So when you don't like the thermostat, what it's set on, or when somebody yells at you for parking in their space where they parked for 30 years, or somebody stares at you for sitting in the pew that their family always sits in, we have to remember that these people are gifts from God. Henry Nouwen wrote, as one body, we will experience deeply one another's agonies as well as one another's ecstasies. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part is hurt, all the parts share its pain. And if one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. In John 17, 22, Jesus prayed, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus led you to this place, and he's given you all these people. These are your excellent ones. He's given these people to you to live life with and to share your sorrows and to share your joys so that the world can see the love we've been given and come to know and love Jesus. But this corporate love extends beyond just life in Carlton and life here on earth. Revelation 21.3 describes this forever love with these words. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God calls us in, in Deuteronomy 32.10, his people, collectively, y'all, not individually, he calls us the apple of his eye. 
In Exodus 19.5, he calls us his treasure. In Deuteronomy 32.9, he calls us his portion. In Revelation 21.9, he calls us, not me, us, his bride. In Scripture, God continually applies collective terms of endearment to those who trust in his love. God's words express his love for us and his desire to share eternity with us, plural. Jesus desires to be with us. Jesus, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, wants us to be with him. So here's the last thing. What does forever in Christ look like? Psalm 16, 10 through 11. David wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here is the center of David's forever hope. And the center of Christian hope. We trust that God will take care of us forever. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, in order to understand what David is talking about here, we have to think about what the mention of Sheol would have meant to a reader in King David's time. Sheol was a hell-like place. And in Jewish tradition, they said that the mouth of hell, the path that led to hell or to Sheol, was in the valley of Gehenna. In Jeremiah chapter 7, this valley is identified as the place where people would sacrifice their children to a false god named Moloch. It was a desolate and lonely an awful place where the corpses of criminals and animals and garbage were disposed of and burned. There were fires going continuously there. This area also contained what was called the field of blood or the potter's field that, that, that is discussed in Matthew chapter 27. The chief priest had paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus so they could murder him. And Judas tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't accept it. And he committed suicide because of his guilt. And the priest used this dirty money to buy the potter's field. And it became a burial site for foreigners and others that were considered unclean. So to wrap this up in a neat package, Sheol, or the Valley of Gehenna, is symbolic of this kind of terrifying, awful place filled with torment. And pain. And later on in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about hell, he directly refers to Gehenna. Now, a lot of people today don't like the idea of hell. And they don't want to admit that there is one. And a lot of people hold on to this thought that if God is a loving God, he would never send anyone to hell. I watched just a couple of weeks ago where a guy who presents himself as the TikTok pastor had his 15-second video explaining that there is no hell. 
And if your pastor talks about hell, you need to run out the doors of that church as fast as you can. Now, he's, he identifies, all right, as a progressive Christian, which basically, if you don't know what a progressive Christian is, that means somebody who has developed a version of Jesus that agrees with their opinions more than the Jesus does that's in the Bible, which kind of makes them not a Christian in any way whatsoever. Okay, there's only one Jesus. You can't have your own Jesus. You can create your own Jesus in your mind, I guess, but you're not a Christian. You're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. But regardless, this progressive Christian said that in, in his social media post. If your pastor mentions hell in their sermon, you need to leave that church as fast as you can. And there were hundreds of comments about how Jesus never mentioned hell in the Bible. But the fact is, the vast majority of biblical teaching about hell came straight out of Jesus' mouth. Twelve times in the Gospels, Jesus has conversations about hell. He discusses it and describes it as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal punishment, a prison, and a place of torment. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 7-9 says that those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So the difference between heaven and hell is that heaven is a place of rest and a place of peace. It's a place of worship, a place of forever love. And hell is an eternity before the completely holy, righteous, burning wrath of God. The settled hostility that God has towards sin. Hell is a place where you will never enjoy intimacy with God. You'll never enjoy His forever love, but instead you will experience His forever wrath. And you might say, well, that's not fair. Well, God's not fair. He's not. But He is just. And He is righteous. He does the right thing every time. No one receives a punishment that they don't deserve. Hell is a place of justice. And justice is when God gives us what we deserve. So a lot of people say that if God was a loving God, He would never send anyone to hell. But that's a poor proof. I would argue that the proof that God is a loving God is found in the idea that He allows any of us undeserving sinners to go to heaven at all. When David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, he's expressing ruthless trust in the idea that God is merciful and God extends grace even to sinners like me and even to sinners like you. Justice is when God gives us what we deserve. Mercy is when he withholds that justice. And grace is when he gives us the gift of eternity in heaven. Through Christ. David goes on and writes, 
You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. When David's talking about corruption, he's literally talking about a state of death and the physical decay of his body. Job asks a question that we all want the answer to in Job 14, 14. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? Death is not a subject that we like to talk about. But I'm going to tell you something, and I might hurt some of your feelings. The gospel that we've come to know in America is not justification by faith in the blood of Christ. The gospel that we've come to know and treat as gospel in America is justification by death. In other words, when you die... Somebody is going to stand in the pulpit and talk about what a great Christian you were. No matter what kind of person you were. No matter what you believed. No matter what you said or did or professed as your system of faith. Somebody is going to get up there and say you have earned your wings and you are in heaven playing your harp with Jesus. This window, I'm going to tell you, and Brittany will tell you this. She's not in here right now, but she'll verify this for you. I'd say an average of nine times a week, I tell her I'm tired of being a pastor. I'm ready to quit. And about three times a week, I walk into the sanctuary, and I look at that window. It says, trust in God. Don't get me wrong. I don't dislike any of y'all. No, it's, it's, not, it's not you, it's me, okay? Uh, so. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about pain. We don't like to talk about difficult things. But if we have faith in Christ, if we trust in God, we can even face death with confidence. With confidence. I texted Brent Bird yesterday and I told him how honored I was. I texted him, I didn't call him. I texted him, told him how honored I was for him to let me be a part of Lawson's baptism today. Here's, here's a man with perspective. He said, I am thrilled to know that my son will be in heaven with me for eternity. We can face death with confidence if we're in Christ. Plato talked about how a sea goes into the ground and it dies and death produces a positive outcome. It produces new life. And when the disciples, we've talked about this the last two weeks, when the disciples were in great anguish over the possibility of Jesus' death, whom they loved so much, he responded in John 16, 20, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So the death of a seed doesn't just precede new life, it produces new life. Likewise, labor pains don't just precede new life, they produce new life. 
the agony of the cross, the crushing weight of the wrath of God that Jesus felt when God the Father punished Him for all the sins of all eternity. His lonely crucifixion resulted in death. But that death didn't just precede new life. It produced the joy of salvation and the expectation of resurrection and the hope of a new life in Christ and the certain expectation of the experience of forever love. So Job asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? And men waited thousands of years for the answer. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus answered and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. By faith in Christ, who died and returned to life, we can face our own deaths with peace about what happens after we die. David died. He had faith that God would take care of him and that God had a plan. In 2 Samuel 7, Nathan, a prophet, came to David and said, When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. It's a fancy way of David saying, saying, David, you're going to die someday. And Nathan said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David knew, he knew that he would die just like his dad and just like his granddad and every other granddad before him. But he knew that there was one coming in his family line who would defeat death and sit on the throne forever. That death would somehow miraculously produce eternal life. And because I'm sure that God will take care of me today, He'll take care of me forever. And I'll spend eternity living in the light of a forever love that will never grow old and will never fade away. Here's the principle, and we're going to close in just a second, I promise. Here's a principle for Christian life from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, Everything that is not eternal is worthless in eternity. God is the greatest thing that we possess. It's better than any experience, any friendship, any romance. Uh, Nothing can compare to the satisfaction and contentment and joy and love that comes from knowing God. When we think about the things we treasure the most, we tend to forget about forever. Stephen Whitmer writes that we as Christians, what we lack isn't better churches with more hip pastors and more exciting music or clever clever church growth programs. What we lack is a vision of biblical restlessness. We settle for making mud pies in the slum when we have the offer of an unending vacation at the beach available to us in the person of Christ. Even our most fulfilling, loving relationships can't satisfy the way Jesus can. Even if they were, uh, listen, Neil Smith's one of the most handsome men I know. No doubt about it. If you don't believe it, just ask him. And, and if there were enough Neil Smiths in the world for every lady in here to have one of their own, if everyone made Neil the focus of their attention and affection, as great as he is, 
you'd still be settling for a lesser love than the forever love you can experience in Christ. When David wrote, I have no good apart from you in Psalm 16, 2. And then in your presence, there's fullness of joy in Psalm 16, 11. What he means is there's, there's no experience in this world that can offer you the eternal satisfaction that is available to you in Jesus. Our truest hope, our deepest joy isn't in the past or the present, but it's in the eternal. In Christ, in Christ alone. Psalm 1611 says that God makes known to us the path of life, the avenue by which we might know the fullest experience of life possible. And here's the key. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A life that exceeds any natural, temporal expectations is only found in Christ. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. The story of Christ is a story of a forever God giving himself so that you can fully experience a true forever love. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman. He becomes the father of the orphaned. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He is the healer to the sick. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed. She wrote, this is what you do when someone you love is in anguish. You respond to the plea of their heart by giving them your heart. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ gave himself fully as a free gift to bear the punishment for our sins on the cross so that we don't have to fear God's judgment anymore, but instead we can enjoy the forever love of God for all eternity. It's an incredible gift that costs us nothing and costs Christ everything. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust in his love. Trust in God. His love never runs out, and it never gives up, and it never leaves, and it never lets go.